welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. In this kind of mini-series of episodes, we're going to explore some topics outside of atrial fibrillation. Specifically, this mini-series is entitled Arrhythmia 101. And today we have a fantastic guest, Dr. Ashkan Adier, who's an electrophysiologist at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, and he discusses with us ventricular tachycardia. So we get into all things VTAC in this episode. I had a great time making this episode, learned a ton. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Ashkan Adier regarding VTAC. All right, everyone. Well, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Amin Kion Kui. I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ashkan Edier from Cedar Sinai. He is an electrophysiologist. He is an associate professor of cardiology, and then he's the associate director of their electrophysiology clinical fellowship program as well. So, Ashkan, welcome to the program. Thank you for your time this afternoon. Of course. Thanks for having me. So in this new series, what we've been trying to do is we're trying to cover, if you will, arrhythmia 101 for folks who are not familiar with arrhythmias outside of atrial fibrillation. And you've published some on VTAC. Obviously, you're an excellent electrophysiologist at Cedars. And so I thought, hey, let's get into some some VTAC. So you mind getting into it with us? All right. For sure. Awesome. Great. So why don't we just start off with what some of our audience is probably familiar with, which are supraventricular tachycardias. Sure. And how's VTAC different? How is VTAC different from SVT, for example? Absolutely. I think VTAC is different because it's, it's ventricular. It has to do with your pump. And when it comes to those topics, obviously people are a little bit more concerned. So VTAC instills kind of this fear to a degree amongst cardiologists and amongst the medicine community, but obviously there's different forms and it's really the the context in which you described the VTAC. So that's the major difference in that sense. Okay. Yeah. So when we talk about kind of atrial arrhythmias, we're more worried about kind of that reservoir or the capacity, you know, the atrial chambers, right? maybe synchrony, but VTAC, just like you said, you know, we're talking about the pump. And you had mentioned, so there's different types. Do you want to get into kind of what those different types are? Absolutely. I think almost like growths, they're benign and malignant. You should think of VTAC in the same way. There's VTAC associated with a normal heart. And what I mean by that is basically the structure of the heart's normal, the valves are normal, everything is normal, the EKG is normal, and that can be called idiopathic VTAC, a very common thing that we see. And then there can be VTAC associated with structural heart disease, which is a little bit more involved because those are the quote-unquote malignant type VTACs. And we're talking about ischemic heart disease, prior MI, which is the most common, non-ischemic varieties, sarcoidosis, right ventricular varieties. These are ARVC and some of these right ventricular myopathies. 
So that's what I mean be, between the, the different types of VTAC. It's really the, the context, the structure of the heart. Okay. And so which one is more common? Like as far as people you're seeing in the clinic, people you're seeing you know, as an inpatient in the hospital, what are the most common consults that you'll get for VTAC? Yeah, I think it's a little bit selection bias at this institution. So most of the time we're getting consultation for VTAC in the setting of structural heart disease. Okay. And our institution is a big heart failure slash transplant slash mechanical support center. So we do collaborate with those physicians. And so we do get a lot of those structure heart related VTACs. In the outpatient setting, you will see some of the, what we call the idiopathic VTACs or the benign VTACs that are not in normal hearts. Those are completely different people in that sure. sense. Well, let's get into that a little bit as far as kind of the patient who presents to clinic. Let's say they're referred to you. They have idiopathic VTAC. Can sure. you walk us through kind of what that clinical conversation is with that patient? What sorts of things do you cover with that idiopathic VTAC patient? Yeah, so I cover basically, you know, after reviewing all the data or if there's any gaps in data, we do obtain other pieces of data. So I tell them, hey, we need to do a, a cardiac MRI. Make okay. sure that nothing is abnormal uh, compared to the echocardiogram. And then I kind of guide them and tell them this is this is not a problem where you need a defibrillator, for example, because a lot of people come to us and say, do I need a defibrillator? They have a structurally normal heart and they have idiopathic VTAC. And usually that can be controlled with medications or an ablation procedure. So those are some of the conversations we have, either expectations, treatment modalities, and kind of prognosis. So obviously... Heart's normal, idiopathic VTAC, the prognosis is very good. Okay. Yeah. And then as far as kind of thresholds for when you would recommend a medication versus kind of taking that next step to an ablation. Yeah, I think if you're talking about idiopathic VTACs, it's all patient preference as well. So I kind of guide them in that sense. Medications can be used and a lot of different you know, medications can be used and it depends on their comorbidities and what their uh, preferences are. And then I do dive into the invasive you know, treatment, which is catheter ablation. And catheter ablation can be curative. So that's the best part is that you can cure it without medication and guiding them and depending on where it's coming from, talking to them using visual guides so they can understand success rates and risk. So in general, you know, the risk is low, the potential for cure is high, those types of things are discussed. In the world of AFib, we talk about ablating either triggers, pathways that lead to drivers, right. left atrial substrate, pulmonary veins, things like that. Right. Can you talk to us and educate us about what are those important structures in VTAC? Is it similar to AFib in that sort of way? Is it different? Can you kind of teach us about ablation targets for VTAC, idiopathic VTAC, let's say? Yeah, idiopathic VTAC is going to be a little bit different than AFib. I think AFib is a syndrome. There's a lot of stuff going on in the heart, neuromodulation all kinds of things that can happen with AFib. It's pretty complex. When it comes to idiopathic VTAC, it's really just about anatomy and okay. reaching that area if you're talking about AFib target, VTAC targets. So it's usually one focal area, whether that be in the outflow tract, which is probably the most common form of VTAC, outflow tract VTAC, RVOT, LVOT, papillary muscle, other structures, uh, fascicular VTAC. So those are just focal areas. And it's just usually one area. But AFib is quite different, as you know. There are many different kind of facets of AFib that you target. Neuromodulation, ganglionic plexi, pulmonary veins, the posterior wall. So I think that's the biggest difference with idiopathic VTAC. And so you were mentioning the outflow tract. So just for our listeners, you know, we're talking about that structure. 
essentially underneath the aortic valve between right. kind of the, if you will, the large muscle chamber of the LV and then right. that kind of narrowing that leads up to the aortic valve. So that's a common area where you have these kind of nidises, if you will, of VTAC that you can ablate. Right, exactly. For the idiopathic forms, one focal source of VTAC. Okay, gotcha. So now let's shift gears a little bit. That was a pretty cool conversation about VTAC. I think most are our idiopathic VTAC. I think most of our audience kind of understands that now and how we can, you know, treat that, if you will, benign VTAC. Right. Let's dive into that malignant VTAC you talked about. And you had mentioned kind of the more common malignant VTAC is the ischemic VTAC or post-ischemic VTAC. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like, why does that happen? Why do we get ischemia and then related arrhythmias like VTAC? Right. That's a good question. And I think it's definitely more involved than the idiopathic VTACs. So I think VTAC associated with structural heart disease. However, that damage has been done to the heart, ischemia, infarction, inflammation produces areas of scar tissue. And that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about scar tissue that can form these electrical circuits. Most of the time, it's the circuits that form in that scar tissue that can produce VTAC. Now, if you imagine you can have scar tissue on one side, scar tissue, you can have multiple areas of scar tissue, and that can form multiple VTACs, for example. So now you're going away from like a focal source and you're looking at some other areas, not just one area, but it could be a broad area, like the apex of the left ventricle, the bottom portion, the inferior wall, the septum for example, and and non-ischemic or even ischemic heart disease. So those are the, that's the scar related is really scar tissue produced VTAC in that sense, the malignant type. And do we have a sense of, let's say somebody has a documented MI, do we have some idea of when that scar tissue forms and when it, if you will, matures into VTAC? Does it take days? Does it take weeks? Does it take months, years? Do we have any idea kind of what that timing is like? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. The timing is longer than you think, probably. So it can take six years or even longer, for example, looking at some of the other studies, and specifically ischemic heart disease. Non-ischemic could be variable because non-ischemic processes, for example, inflammation, is not related to heart attacks that can happen once in your lifetime, like a big heart attack. So that's why non-ischemic is a little bit different. That time period could change quicker or later. But if you look at ischemic scar, so prior MI, it's going to take some time for that heart tissue and the remodeling process, whatever that is that forms these electrical circuits from an old heart attack. That's interesting you say that because it does make sense with respect to what surgeons see often, which is, you know, when we get consulted for VTAC, it's often in the setting of an aneurysm, right? An LV right. aneurysm, big blown right. out aneurysm. And The way we treat it often in the operating room, not only do we try to revascularize that myocardium with bypass, but then we ultimately end up ablating around that scar tissue, whether it's with cryotherapy or something. So it makes a lot of sense when you talk about it It may take years for, from the moment of a ischemic event to kind of that, what we see that macro scar formation with that aneurysm. And then ultimately that ischemic PT from uh, happening. I think you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but Can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between, you know, these are terms we hear out on the floor, maybe surgeons aren't familiar with, monomorphic VT versus polymorphic VT, like Mm -hmm. surgeons, we hear this stuff and we're like, time out. (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) What's going on? on? Where's my cheat sheet? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's a good, good question. I think 
monomorphic VT and polymorphic VT, quite different. Okay. And I would think of polymorphic VT as the, the precursor to VF to a degree. So it's chaotic. It's not regular. It doesn't have a regular QRS every single time. And that's polymorphic VT. And when you mention that to an electrophysiologist, completely different thought process than monomorphic VT to a degree. And we think of monomorphic BT as more regular, more related to scar and tissue that's forming a racetrack in that scar tissue. And polymorphic BT can happen for many reasons, in fact. So the, the irregular variety, the pre-VF variety can be due to torsade, for example, torsade de pont, which is a QT problem, or it could be iatrogenic or due to some other issues, medications. Um, so that's kind of the difference that I look at in that sense between the monomorphic and the polymorphic varieties. What are the, the medications that you often will identify that kind of lead to that polymorphic VTAC? Yeah, I think uh, anything that can prolong the QT interval and some of the antiarrhythmics that we use can do that. So uh, num- number one, sotolol, you've seen used in the hospital, dofetilide, which is used for AFib mostly, and then any other medication, even general medications, antipsychotics, antimedics, antibiotics, all those can also cause polymorphic VTAC. And whether the patient has a normal heart or a abnormal heart, it can do that. So those are the things that we, we think about when we see polymorphic VTAC. In addition to what you know very well, is ischemia can cause that too, polymorphic VT and, and changes in the QT interval. Let's talk about the patient you probably see pretty common in the hospital. You get consulted for somebody, let's say they just had a cabbage, right? They've had known ischemia. They go to the operating room, a surgeon performs a cabbage, they come out of the operating room and they start having these VT episodes. Surgeons are concerned. Can you walk us through how you would evaluate that patient and help the surgeon figure out where this VTAC is coming from and then ultimately what your treatment thoughts would be for a patient like that? Yeah, I think monomorphic VTAC. So same QRS every single time on telemetry and the patients. And obviously, first things first is if the patient's unstable, you go to that protocol of ACLS and kind of get the surgeon there and see if there's something that we need to do to improve perfusion. That's the biggest thing. And then trying to figure out what's happening. Number one is, okay, is there was there pre-existing scar tissue? And I think that's the biggest question and sometimes it's unanswered, whether there's somebody that had an old MI and it's coming for cabbage and revascularize everything else. But that old MI, for whatever reason, has produced this VTAC, let's say in the inferior wall. And so those are the kind of the reasons that I think about when somebody has monomorphic VTAC after a bypass cabbage procedure, in addition to if there's any ischemia on board as well. And usually there may be, and it depends on what happened. And I talk to the surgeon, kind of get a sense of what's going on. And those are the things that I, I look at, and if we need to order some an echo or look at structural heart disease in detail, that's what we do afterwards. And from looking at a 12 lead EKG, you can kind of tell sometimes where the VTAC, the region, the wall where the VTAC is coming from. There's been many cases I'll mention to you that somebody's had outflow tract, the, the VTAC, unrelated to anything. And that's a different type of unique scenario where somebody has that just based on sheer luck or pressors or inotropes, and that can happen even if you had bypass and prior MI, for example. So a little bit of a mix. So that's why we look at the EKG, look at the three lead EKG as well to understand that. Let's do this. Walk us through 
the bedside assessment of that patient who has VTAC, they're unstable. What are you doing to stabilize that patient? And then you kind of talked about the echo. What other things are you doing now, maybe a day later, a week later to try to prevent that from happening again? Yeah, usually it's it's usually antiarrhythmics first and foremost. And you're looking at antiarrhythmics that include, you know, beta blockers, amiodarone, lidocaine if needed. And those are kind of the three I would think about, top three. But again, beta blockers may not be used because of hypotension or the patients on pressors. And those are the things we have to kind of balance in that sense. Cardiologists, EPs love beta blockers, but it's hard. You can't use them immediately post-op. But later on, once the patient stabilizes, whether you had to do a electrical cardioversion bedside and then put them on amiodarone, eventually that patient is going to get on beta blockers anyway, probably because they had structural heart disease, low EF, whatever it is. And so those are the things I think about a week later, you know, even a month later in that sense. So it's all really mostly medical therapy after surgery. We rarely, as electrophysiologists, go in and start performing an ablation immediately post-op. There's all these technical points with surgery. There's technical points with EP. Real super basic question. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. What is your algorithm for bedside defibrillation for somebody who has VTAC? Like, do you just go, boom, I'm doing 200, I'm doing 300, I'm doing 360? Or what is your algorithm? I mean, as far as algorithms using energy, I don't think I have a clear energy cutoff. I mean, 200 biphasic. And if if it's VTAC, usually kind of synchronize it and see, and and that's kind of that's how I go. Okay. I, I rarely go down below you know 150, 120 or anything like that. I, I just don't know if it's really worth it. Okay, in that sense, especially the body habitus and the person. So yeah, I don't know if, if surgeons like a certain <laughs> dual number and a biphasic or different ways to put the paddles on. Yeah, I, sure, sure. Okay, anything, all right. Anything you can do, right? To yeah, blood pressure. So. Exactly, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned this earlier. So, okay, so this patient has an episode post-cabbage. They right. get, they stabilize on medications. At what point do you, or what do you think about when you decide whether that patient needs a defibrillator as an outpatient or something like that? Can you, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, that's a very good question because that comes up not infrequently. Monomorphic VTAC after bypass surgery. And the question is defibrillator, no defibrillator. My algorithm, again, is to look, and this is kind of the theme, is to look for scar tissue. If there's scar tissue there, even if you perfuse that scar tissue, the scar tissue is not going to go away. Whatever you do, bypass, stents, whatever. So I think looking for that, and even I've ordered MRIs, to look for that, I've ordered perfusion scans. You have a matched you know, defect. And so if it fits the picture of where the VT is coming from, then I do say, you know, listen, this may, patient may require an ICD just because that area is not going to get better. They're going to have an EF, even if they have an EF of 40%, you know, 45%. If there's no scar tissue, that's a good sign. And then there may be room for improvement with revascularization. And so maybe we hold off some people use a life vest here and there. I, you know, that's up. It's hard to determine who needs one, who doesn't need one. But I think it's really for me is I, even I tell the fellows, look for the scar, however you can. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we'll have those depressed EF patients that we'll send home with the life vest. Right. What is, and then, you know, we never see them again, right? We see them two right. weeks at their post-op and then we have no idea what the compliance with those life sure. vests are and like how many convert to ICDs. 
Right. Can you tell us about what that looks like from a EP's point of view when you're following up with these folks in clinic? I mean, how many of those LifeFest patients get something more versus how many of them you just take the life vest off and they're cruising. They don't need anything else for their deep for their. Right. I'll tell you in general, the numbers are low to begin with. The people that I see in my clinic, my colleagues that come with the life vest after bypass surgery, usually somebody's made a decision either way in the beginning. But yeah, if I do see those people again, it's a repeat echo, repeat assessment of what the VTAC was. Was it polymorphic VTAC? Was it monomorphic VTAC? And looking for the changes in the structure of the heart after surgery. If there's no major changes, like I said, there's areas of scar, then I'm inclined to say, use an MRI, for example. I think MRI is a great tool. We use it a lot in cardiac EP to determine whether the patient needs an ICD or not and counsel them. I don't, the, the use, utility of an EP study is sometimes there, but it's not black and white. Sometimes that's hard to determine. So in, in my practice, I use imaging a lot to determine whether somebody needs a recommendation for an ICD. Okay. In the AFib world, we talk about imaging, you know, typically at least six weeks out from any sort of surgery or epicardial surgical ablation. Right. What is that timing like for ventricular arrhythmias? Do you have the same sort of idea? You're waiting a couple months really until the dust settles or is it different? As far as uh, post revascularization? Like yeah, and kind of mapping for scar tissue. Yeah, I think probably on the order of months. Okay. So talking about like three months later, try to look at things in that sense, okay. letting the dust settle. So maybe longer than atrial arrhythmia as an AFib. Okay, yeah. gotcha. And then when we talk about atrial arrhythmias, again, just kind of putting it in this context, we sure. talk about slow conduction as well, the scar tissue. And you've mentioned it before. Is that kind of the same idea with VTAC that... You're really just trying to get around these slow conduction areas. And how does ablation address that in ventricular myocardium? That's a good question. The mention, the term slow conduction actually applies very well to ventricular tachycardia. The classic concept is that scar tissue produces slow electrical conduction, and that forms a, a what we call a reentrant circuit or kind of a racetrack of electrical activity that can meander through scar. And that cannot form if you don't have scar there. So that applies to all forms of structural heart disease-related VTAC. And as it applies to ablation, we have evolution of ablation has become looking for that slow conduction areas. So where it's not just scar, like you know where the scar is, but where is the actual areas where the electricity is very abnormal, slow forming, slow propagation, slow conduction. And so our tools have really gotten us there. So the tools we use now compared to 10 years ago, they're way more advanced, high resolution, what we call multi-electrode, kind of having a lot of information at one sitting. And so those things can actually help us understand slow conduction as it pertains to VT, ventricular tachycardia. However, the problem is that we're always touching the surface of the heart, whether it's inside on the endocardium, the chamber inside, or on the epicardium. You guys know the epicardium very well, just on the surface. But what about the stuff in the middle? How do we get our tools inside the, what we call the mesocardium or the middle of the heart muscle? And that's challenging, especially in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy where the scar is three-dimensional and you can't touch the tissue that you want to touch. So I think that's the Achilles heel of the procedures that we do and the ablation that we do. The ablation only touches the surface. We use radio frequency 
to get enough depth into the middle of the heart, but sometimes we uh, we can't reach. And our quote unquote lesions or ablation technology is not perfect in that sense. Again, in the context of atrial ablations, we often think of anchoring those ablations to the fibroskeleton of the heart or at least to itself. Is that same concept present in in ventricular ablation or can they be more kind of isolated points that don't necessarily anchor to another structure? Yeah, I think there's been many groups out there looking at what you're talking about, linear ablation anchoring to, let's say, an inert object, which would be, for example, the mitral valve in the setting of an inferior myocardial infarction. And, but the problem is that you can't really anchor to some thoracic veins. So there's really no anchoring of sorts in the left ventricle or even the right ventricle. And those inert subjects are few and far between. So there are techniques where just a kind of a patch ablation or a regional ablation is performed. Hopefully that can extinguish the, the abnormal slow conduction, for example, that can promote BTAC. And you had mentioned radio frequency earlier. We know that we use stuff like cryo in the atriums. PFA is kind of the hot new thing. What's the role of those other energy sources in in VTAC? I think they're going to play a huge role when it comes to VTAC. I think right now we're just kind of opening the door to these new technologies. So for example, radio frequency has been around for many years, but it has its own limitations, point-by-point application you would like to have something that would be more broad application. And so PFA offers that. And there's uh, preclinical animal models going on right now in the ventricle. Human, obviously, there's studying human atrium with PFA right now for AFib. And then, you know, cryotechnologies. You and I have probably used the same tool, that, you know, the cryoprobe. I've used it on the epicardium as well. And it comes with its own limitations. It takes a long time to apply. Yeah. And you need a, multiple applications. So I think those will play a huge role, especially for us electrophysiologists, where we can't reach the tissue that we want to reach in the ventricle, much thicker than the atrial tissue in general. And so how often do you feel like you need to go epicardial, get to the spot where you're trying to get? Yeah, I think it depends on the type of heart disease. So for example, non-ischemic heart disease may have more epicardial involvement. That's not to say that ischemic heart disease, a dense you know, apical aneurysm, like you mentioned, or inferior wall MI doesn't have epicardial involvement. And again, the huge thing is to look at imaging and to guide you. So I use MRI to guide me and say, okay, this has, this area has epicardial scar, could be this nidus for VTAC. And then we may go epicardial up front, meaning during the same procedure that I would do at endocardial. Other times it may be challenging. And we may ask you as the surgeon to open up epicardial window which I've done multiple times, either subxiphoid or, or lateral, to be able to get to an area because of uh, prior sternotomy, where we can't, as electrophysiologists, really put our tools into a fibrotic pericardium in that sense. So it, it depends on the, the patient. Not frequently, you know, not every single time do we go epicardial. Okay. You know, and this is going to be a loaded question because I'm sure, sure there's so many different pathologies and techniques, but what is the success rate of ablation as a kind of a one-time technique? How often time, how often do you need to go in for a second or third ablation? Can you kind of, in terms as whatever you're comfortable with, kind of talk about how successful is ablation in, in VTAC? Sure. If you're going to separate, you should definitely separate the idiopathic VTACs from the scar-related VTACs, the malignant type, 
Idiopathic, I think the success rates are very good for a one-time procedure. And most people don't need a redo, for okay. example, because it's a focal source, right? You get to that area, you cauterize it well, and you're able to reach the tissue, it should be done. I think the limitations with that is sometimes you bring the patient to the procedure room and you're never able to reproduce the VTAC that they had at home. And that's kind of challenging. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. And interesting. that's the hardest part about arrhythmias because they're not always incessant and always there in front of you, you know, like a valve stenosis or a blocked artery, coronary artery. So switching gears to the structural heart disease of Linden VTAX, I think that is hard to answer. And it really depends on how the biggest thing is how much scar tissue are we dealing with? How low a EF are we dealing with? you know, in that sense. And there's been plenty of studies to show that there's going to be recurrences in those situations. And I've done procedures two, three times for some of those patients to relieve them of the multiple VTACs that they have, not just one. If you have a small scar, you have a relatively healthy heart or EF that's not that bad, maybe one procedure does it because right? you're not dealing with a lot more scar tissue. And then there's certain areas that we know that are high risk for a recurrence. So for example, a uh, Septal, the ventricular septum is so thick, you may not be able to reach all the tissue that you want to reach in one sitting. And you may require aggressive measures for ablation, redo with uh, what we call bipolar, for example, which we use here, cauterizing from both sides to reach deeper in the tissue, sandwiching it and cauterizing simultaneously using that technique. So there's different techniques, but so it's quite variable when you look at structural heart disease in the sense of quote unquote success. And the other problem is how do you define success? So let's say a patient has an ICD. They've gotten shocked once every week for VTAC. However, you do one procedure or even do two procedures, for example, and they get shocked maybe once a year. And so even though that they did have a recurrence of VTAC, does that really mean that it wasn't successful? So the definition is, you know, in that sense, more of a reduce the burden of shocks, reduce the burden of VT, VTAC. Yeah, it's really interesting you bring that up because we all, surgeons, EPs, we, and, you know, everyone who treats AFib yeah. struggles with that big time, right? We're all stuck on this HRS definition of less than 30 seconds off antiarrhythmics. Yes. <laughs> and like, what does that even mean clinically? Challenging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we have a sense of, again, loaded question, how much VTAC is enough to cause something bad to happen? You know, in, in AFib, we talk about, six minutes if their Chaz Vask is three, oh, yeah. 20, you yeah. know, 24 hours if their Chaz Vask is two. Do we have right. any idea how much VTAC is enough to cause something bad to happen? Yeah, I don't think you'd think of it in those terms because most of the time VTAC related to structural heart disease is, you know, those people have ICDs, right? And, and that's kind of majority of people. And I mean, if they don't have an ICD, one VTAC episode going, you know, 220 beats per minute, for a minute, it's it, right? They game can, over. Game yeah. over. They could, you know, collapse. So I think it's quite different than the supraventricular arrhythmias, including AFib. So th that's kind of a hard question to answer. Yeah. All right. Well, the last thing I wanted to touch on was you guys put out a pretty cool study recently where instead of doing ablation, you're actually trying to re essentially, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but revive the tissue around these slow conduction right. areas. You want to talk about that? Because I thought that was yeah. pretty fascinating. That's a really interesting concept. Can you talk about your recent study? I mean, collaborative efforts from everybody involved, but 
the thought process is, is that could you regenerate tissue, right? Instead of ablation, regeneration. And whether instilling kind of exosomes or basically regenerative cells into the heart could change the properties of the scar. Now, because the question is the physiology is there that, you know, if scar tissue takes years to form these nidises for VTAC, could we kind of regenerate some of that stuff so that we don't have VTAC and slow conduction anymore? So this was done in, in a pig model of ischemic heart disease and basically using mapping and MRI to understand the changes in the structure of the scar tissue of the heart and also the function of the heart. So the premise is that you can regenerate or change the way the electricity conducts by using kind of the, these types of cell, cell therapy, if you will. That's very cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're all pretty excited about the recent xenotransplantation that happened out at the University of Maryland. Maryland, yeah, exactly. But, but my gosh, how how much cooler would it be if you could just regenerate, you know, local heart tissue, native right. heart tissue to, to avoid a transplant in, in, entirely. So right. I, I was really in, in awe of that paper and that whole concept. I thought that was very cool because just like you said, you know, we spend so much time destroying tissue with right. ablation. Right. That it's very cool to think about regeneration. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Well, look, is there anything else that you would want us surgical colleagues, other folks who are listening to this podcast to realize and know about VTAC before we finish this episode? I think there's some very similar qualities or, you know, thought processes that I take to VTAC that most other cardiologists and surgeons take to a different type of heart disease or syndrome. So for example, like congestive heart failure. Okay. We don't think of congestive heart failure in a sense that it's a, it's a unidimensional type of problem. And I think that everybody listening should also understand that VTAC is not like that either, especially in structural heart disease. You have a syndrome with variable presentations. You know, people can have ICD shocks or they can just feel palpitations. It can be intermittent, just like heart failure, right? There's all kinds of substrates. Heart failure with the reduced ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction, non-ischemic, and then kind of mechanisms. We always approach heart failure with like multiple, you know, guideline-directed medical therapy and some kind of and resynchronization therapy. We should kind of think of the same as VTAC, not just ablation or medications. There's kind of surgical sympathectomy that we've done with the thoracic surgeons, and then the treatment goals are really to improve quality of life and improve survival and really reduce heart failure hospitalizations. When we talk about heart failure, the same should apply to VTAC, arrhythmias, right? So I think there is very similar concepts, but I think people understand that part for CHF, congestive heart failure, more than VTAC. So it should take a kind of a multidisciplinary approach in that sense. So that makes so much sense. Yeah, it seems like we're all moving more towards this multidisciplinary approach. You know, yeah. we're kind of coming full circle to back in the day when everyone used to do that for transplant. Then right. there was this period where no one talked to each other and then right. kind of Taver brought that back into the fold. And now with other structural heart interventions right. and, you know, it feels like at least that arrhythmia, whether it's atrial or ventricular, it is again, coming into that swell, if you will, yeah. as well. And so hopefully we all essentially start to work with each other more to, to find solutions for our patients. Absolutely. I think it's huge. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with us. Yeah, of course. I think, uh, I think there's a lot of knowledge to be gained with this. Yeah. And uh, thanks for joining our series on Arrhythmias 101 and covering VTAC with us. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. 
All right, buddy. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.